0: Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Chris at Internet Radio. Tonight is Friday, March 10th, 2017. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Here we are going to make a presentation of Paul's Epistle to Titus. And we are nearing the completion of a commentary on the Epistles of the Apostle Paul, which we had begun with the Epistle to the Romans on... March 28th of 2014, nearly three years ago. We have decided to put Titus in order here before Timothy, not only because this epistle was written before either of the epistles to Timothy, ostensibly, but also because we find it appropriate to present to Timothy last In our presentation of Paul's epistles, when we discuss 2 Timothy, the reasons for that shall become manifest. The term purity spiraling began amongst denominational Christians to describe an extreme manifestation of virtue signaling. Virtue signaling doing or saying things that make yourself look better than others, or that make yourself appear to be righteous. We associate purity spiraling and even virtue signaling with with the wayward and hypocritical form of self-righteousness that often affects Christians of all sorts, even identity Christians. I'm better than you because I don't do this, or I don't say that, etc., etc. But recently, the alt-right has latched on to the term purity spiraling, and used it to describe the attitudes of racial purists. This evening, we are going to take it back for Christians, but we are going to apply it in the way that the alt-right uses it. To describe a need for the promotion of racial purity amongst whites everywhere. So to the secularist, secularist, I'm sorry, to the secularist Jew lovers of the alt-right, the term has a negative connotation. But to us, it is a positive idea. Because, as we all should know, purity and especially racial purity is next to godliness. So this is Paul's Epistle to Titus, and this is part one of our presentation, and it's subtitled Purity Spiraling in Apostolic Christianity. Imagine that. The early manuscript evidence for the Epistle to Titus is found in a papyrus designated P32, which is esteemed to date from around 200 AD. The fourth-century Codex Sinaiticus, the fifth-century Codices Alexandrinus, Ephraimus Syri, and Vaticanus 2061, and the sixth-century Codex Claromontanus, as well as an unnamed manuscript. 088 it's designated in the Nestle-Alan system that may be a little older than the 6th century and which survives and in which survive only a few fragments parts of the first 13 verses of this epistle as well as parts of the final chapters of 1 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians, if you will. Additionally, Paul's Epistle to Titus is cited or mentioned in the Epistles of Ignatius, which date to around the very beginning of the 2nd century, and also by Irenaeus and Clement of Alexandria, who are both of the late 2nd century, and by Tertullian, Origen, and Cyprian, all of whom wrote in the early half of the third century. However, none of these early sources add anything to our knowledge of Titus himself or his work in the ministry of Christ. For the historical background on Titus, we must also include a brief discussion of Paul's travels in relation to the epistles which he had written to the Corinthians and the Galatians as Titus is mentioned in both of them the first surviving epistle to the Corinthians was written during the time that Paul stayed in Ephesus as it is described in Acts chapter 19 and the writing of 1 Corinthians from Ephesus is mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 on two occasions After spending approximately three years in Ephesus, Paul departed from the city in 56 AD. His departure may be reckoned by counting backwards from the time of his descension in in Caesarea, which is given by Luke in the final chapters of the book of Acts. By comparing the times of the terms of office of the the Roman procurators Festus and Felix, which are known from history. The primary witness for this is in Luke's writing at Acts chapter 24, verses 26 and 27, where he says of Felix, But after two years, Porcius Festus came into Felix's room, meaning his office, and Felix, willing to show the Judeans or the Jews a pleasure, left Paul bound. Many historians debate whether it was 58 or 59 AD, but the one year difference is close enough for us. We cannot be absolutely certain, but for various historical reasons, we are confident that the year was 59, and we can count back through the Book of Acts to this point in 56 AD. That is also the year in which we believe this epistle to Titus was written. In the summer of 56 AD, or perhaps in the spring of that year, if Paul had to leave Ephesus before the Pentecost, which he had planned on on, on staying there, on spending there. And we see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 verse 8, that Paul planned on staying in Ephesus until the Pentecost of that year. But then when we read the account in Acts chapter 19, it seems that Paul may have left Ephesus a little sooner because of the troubles that he had with the silversmiths. The epistle to Titus was written after Paul departed from Ephesus and journeyed to Macedonia through the, through the Troad. And the second epistle to the Corinthians was written as Paul was about to journey from Macedonia to visit Corinth in Acaia for the last time. The Peloponnesus was part of the Roman district or province of Acaia at that time. The first epistle to Timothy was written from either Macedonia or from Nicopolis in Greece shortly after this epistle to Titus was written as the circumstances indicate, along with Paul's own comments in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. At the end of this epistle to Titus, Paul explains that he had decided to winter in the Copolis, where it is evident that this letter was written as he departed from the Troad and route to Macedonia. Paul's travels at this time were briefly described at the beginning of Acts chapter 20. For some unknown reason, as Paul departed from Ephesus, where he had left Timothy, he had hoped to find Titus in the Troad. This, ex- this Paul explained later when he wrote 2 Corinthians or Second Corinthians from Nicopolis, and he said in chapter 2 of that epistle, that furthermore when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel and a door was opened unto me of the Lord I had no rest in my spirit because I found not Titus my brother but taking my leave of them I went from thence into Macedonia so when Paul failed to find Titus in the Troad he sent for him with this epistle, the epistle to Titus, which is evident at the end of the epistle to Titus and later on in 2 Corinthians, where Paul in chapter 7 says at verse 5, For when we were come into Macedonia, meaning from the Troad after he left Ephesus, our flesh had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Without were fightings, within were fears. Nevertheless, God, that comforts those that are cast down, comforted us by the coming of Titus. It is evident that when Paul did not find Titus in the Troad, that someone whom Paul knew there must have known where Titus was and was able to inform Paul of his whereabouts. When Paul wrote this epistle, Before he even decided who it was that he was going to ask to bring this epistle to Titus, he said in chapter three, when I shall send Artemis to thee or Tychicus, be diligent to come unto me to Nicopolis, for I have determined there to winter. Before leaving Ephesus for the Troad, Paul had planned on wintering in Corinth, as he explained in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 verse 6. But somewhere along the way, and before he wrote Titus from the Troad, he decided to winter in Nicopolis instead, as he says in Titus chapter 3 verse 12. For this Paul gave his reasons in 2 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2, and we do not have the benefit of seeing the letter which Paul must have received from the Corinthians, which was an answer to the first letter of Corinthians, to the Corinthians written by Paul, which was written shortly before time, as Paul was still in Ephesus, which had caused him to make this decision. So what I'm saying is that Paul wrote First Corinthians before he left Ephesus, went to the Troad expecting to find Titus, did not find Titus, found out where Titus was, then he wrote to Titus, this epistle which we have here, asking Titus to meet him in Nicopolis, because in the meantime, Paul must have received a letter from the Corinthians in reply to his letter to them, and that made Paul decide not to spend the winter in Corinth, but to hold up going to Corinth and go to Nicopolis instead. But rather than meet Paul in Nicopolis, and Nicopolis is in Greece, which is in the district of Epirus in the west of Greece, which is kind of north of Acahia and south of Macedonia, rather than meet Paul in Nicopolis in Greece, it is evident that Titus caught up with him in Macedonia, which Paul later stated in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, whereafter they may have traveled to Nicopolis together. But many commentators claim that Paul wintered that year in Nicopolis in Macedonia. There was another city named Nicopolis in Thrace, which was close to Macedonia, but it was not in Macedonia. The Nicopolis, which was in Thrace, is not in Greece, and if Paul wintered there, then it is not at all likely that he could have traveled to Greece after the end of the winter, and then spend three months in Greece as Luke attests in Acts chapter 20 and then make it back through Macedonia to the Troad and on to Miletus and Judea to arrive in Jerusalem before the following Pentecost, as it is recorded that he was resolved to do in Acts chapter 20, verse 16. The entire space from the end of winter, which is traditionally the end of February in the Roman world, Unto the Pentecost would be less than five months in the year 57 AD. If Paul stayed the winter in Nicopolis in Thrace, and then spent three months in Greece, all this would have been impossible to do, since there were not even three full months between the end of winter and the date of Pentecost. Rather, there were a few days short of three months since the Pentecost that year was evidently in the last week of May. By the traditional Hebrew calendar from which the Judeans had departed, the Pentecost was in the third week of May. The only way that Paul could have wintered in the Coppolis and spent three months in Greece as Luke attests before traveling the long route to Jerusalem and arriving in time for the Pentecost, as if that three months were spent at Nicopolis in Greece, not in Thrace. And the Nicopolis in Greece was in Epirus, located just northwest of Acahia and Corinth. So Paul held up at the three-quarter way point on his trip because he didn't want to go all the way to Corinth to spend the winter there and he explains the reasons for that in the second letter to the Corinthians which he wrote while he was in Nicopolis later after he had met Paul in Macedonia Titus remained in the company of Paul as he wintered in Nicopolis which is where the second of the surviving epistles to the Corinthians was written and Titus Titus delivered that epistle to the assembly in Corinth ahead of Paul's last visit there as we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 14 but Timothy was also with Paul when that letter was written and therefore he must have traveled to Nicopolis from Ephesus to be with him sometime after receiving Paul's letter which is now known to us as 1 Timothy, or First Timothy. In that letter, Paul had told Timothy that he would come to him. But somehow, Timothy had instead come to Paul. From this time, it is apparent that Timothy stayed with Paul and was arrested with him in Jerusalem. Ostensibly, Titus did not accompany Paul back from Corinth back to the Troad and on to Jerusalem, since Titus is not mentioned again in the book of Acts, or in any of Paul's later epistles, Hebrews, Romans, Colossians, Philippians, Ephesians, Philemon, or in any of Paul's later epistles, with the exception of 2 Timothy, where it is said that he went to Dalmatia. So it is apparent that later on Titus did visit with Paul in Rome and went to Dalmatia. Aside from this epistle to Titus and the mention of Titus in 2 Corinthians, that mention of Titus in 2 Timothy is the last that we ever know of him from Scripture or from history. Knowing when this epistle was written from the Troad just after Paul leaves Ephesus, as he's about to travel into Macedonia and on to Epirus and Nicopolis, where he would spend the winter. Knowing when this epistle was written, therefore where Paul said to Titus in chapter 1 of this epistle, that for this cause I left thee in Crete, we may understand that Paul must have left Titus in Crete, at an earlier time than the end of his own three-year stay in Ephesus. Now one possible opportunity for that seems to have been after he had spent a year and a half in Corinth, during the voyage which he had made to Syria and Judea, which is mentioned in Acts chapter 18. There, after Paul departs from Corinth, we read a very concise account of his travels where Luke wrote, And Paul, after this, tarried there at Corinth, after the episode before Gallio, when the Judeans attempted to accuse Paul, And Paul, after this, tarried there, meaning at Corinth, yet a good while, and then took his leave of the brethren, and sailed thence into Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila, having shorn his head in Cancria, for he had a vow. Now cancrea is a seaport east of Corinth, from which sailing east would be the likely port of departure. Where Paul says, "Sail," where Luke says, I'm sorry, sail thence into Syria, he is only describing Paul's intention for departing Corinth, which he executes as he is departing from cancrea Then, as the account in Acts continues, it says, And he came to Ephesus, which would be on the route to Syria. It would be a seaport stopping point on the route to Syria. And left them there, referring to Priscilla and Aquila. But he himself entered into the synagogue and reasoned with the Judeans. When they decided him to tarry longer time with them, he consented not, but bade them farewell, saying, I must by all means keep this feast that comes in Jerusalem, but I will again return unto you, if God wills. And he sailed from Ephesus, and when he had landed at Caesarea, and gone up and saluted the church, he went down to Antioch, and after he had spent some time there, he departed and went all over the country of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. Now, Ephesus was a logical stopping point for the voyage from Cancrea to Caesarea. So we see that Paul stopped there during his trip and promised to return when he completed it, which he did as it is recorded at the opening of Acts chapter 19 but Titus was with Paul in Antioch when Paul had arrived there at this very time which we see that Paul himself had attested to in Galatians chapter 2 the epistle to the Galatians was written after Paul's disputes with the other apostles in Antioch and before Paul visited the Galatians as in it he expresses an anticipation of visiting them in galatians chapter 4 verses 18 and 20 so titus may have been left in crete after paul's last visit to antioch and before he returned to ephesus unless there was a later and unrecorded occasion for his being in crete since paul seems to have travelled from antioch and on to galatia and ephesus on foot exclusively on foot. There may well have been another occasion which is not recorded. The island of Crete, meaning that Titus walked with Paul. The island of Crete is only a short distance, perhaps 200 miles by sea, from the port of Ephesus in southwest Anatolia. The voyage was typically made in less than two days and we have documented historical references to that, which will be supplied with our notes to this podcast. In any case, if Paul left Titus in Crete after he departed from Corinth, and before the end of his three years in Ephesus, and since there is no Titus associated with Paul before he was in Corinth, then the circumstances support the association of this Titus with the Justice of Acts chapter 18, who lived next to the synagogue of the Judeans in Corinth. Some manuscripts, such as the manuscript Codex Sinaiticus and the Codex Laudianus, which I believe is from the 6th century, some manuscripts of Acts call that Justice in Acts chapter 18 Titus Justice, and others such as the Codex Vaticanus, call him Titius Justice. And by the name Justice, he is only mentioned in Corinth in Acts chapter 18. He is only mentioned in Scripture, I'm sorry, in Acts chapter 18. In spite of the location of his house, from the context of Acts chapter 18 up to verse 7, Justice, or Titus Justice, seems to have been a Greek, or perhaps a Roman, and not a Judean, as the Judeans at Corinth had initially rejected Paul. The events at this point in Paul's ministry are very sparsely recorded, and we see that people such as Zenos and Artemis, who are mentioned in the epistle to Titus, are not mentioned anywhere else. However, it is not until Paul is in Corinth and stays at the house of Titus' justice that the Apostle Titus appears in the records. And thus we are confident with the association. To summarize our conclusions, Paul met Titus in Corinth around 49 or 50 A.D and Titus remained with Paul at least as far as Paul's trip to Antioch in late 51 or early 52 AD. Titus may have accompanied Paul to Ephesus, but we cannot be sure. Titus is not mentioned again until Paul writes this epistle beckoning him to come to Nicopolis in 56 AD. And in the interim, at some point, Paul had left Titus in Crete to organize the Christian assembly there. When Titus receives this epistle, he meets Paul in Macedonia and stays with him for his winter in Nicopolis, during which at some point Timothy also joins them. When the second epistle to the Corinthians is written, Titus then leaves Nicopolis ahead of Paul to deliver it, and he is not seen again. After Paul's brief visit to Corinth, he makes his final voyage to Judea, where he is arrested in 58 AD and eventually sent to Rome. Titus is only mentioned on one further occasion when Paul wrote to Timothy, which was probably in 61 AD, where it is described that Titus had went to Dalmatia. So Titus must have visited with Paul in Rome at some point before 2 Timothy was written and departed for Dalmatia. During these final 10 years of Paul's ministry, Titus seems to have been a significant figure. But he was not as important to Paul as was Timothy while both men were with Paul when the second epistle to the Corinthians was written that epistle was declared in its opening verse to have been from Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy our brother unto the church of God which is at Corinth so Timothy was honored as a co-author of the epistle whereas Titus was only chosen to deliver the epistle ostensibly however The only real difference between the men appears to be that this seems to be the way in which Paul designated Timothy as the heir apparent to his ministry, and by no means does it diminish the value of Titus or the others of Paul's companions. Furthermore, understanding that Titus is the Titus justice of the manuscripts in Acts, who was originally from Corinth, explains why Paul chose him to deliver to Corinthians the second letter to the Corinthians and why Paul chose to extol Titus to the Corinthians in the text of that epistle where he is mentioned eight times so this also helps to substantiate our association with of Titus with that Titus justice of the manuscripts of Acts 18, verse 7. Before we commence, it may be fitting to add one further perspective. At least some readers may wonder, if Paul intended to see Titus, or if he intended to see Timothy even as he was writing to them, why then would he include so many exhortations and instructions in his letters? To us the answer is obvious, in that Paul understood the opposition to his message, which he encountered practically everywhere he went. He was beaten and stoned, or had to flee from places, on many more occasions than we have surviving records. And he understood that he could be killed at any given point, in his travels or in his preaching. So each epistle that he wrote to his fellow workers... was written as if it were the last epistle that he would write to them. It is also evident to us that he probably wrote many more pastoral epistles than the three which did survive to us. I count three. I don't believe Philemon is really a pastoral epistle. It's certainly not. It is evident to us that Pro- Paul probably wrote many more pastoral epistles than the three which did survive to us. But, from the earliest times, these are the only three which did survive to us. They're the only three which are known to have survived not only not only to us but to the earliest Christian writers. It is also evident to us that there are barely any connections between the earliest apostles and the Christian writers of the subsequent centuries, because the persecutions of early Christians was so severe that it practically obliterated the works of all of the early apostles. All of the early accounts of the lives of the apostles, or the manner in which their lives ended, are apocryphal. We are fortunate to possess the twenty-one authentic, apostolic epistles, which did survive. The critics are still trying to obliterate them. With this, we shall commence with our commentary on the content of the epistle to Titus, and Titus chapter 1. Paul, servant of Yahweh, and ambassador of Yahshua Christ, concerning the faith of the elect of Yahweh, and the true knowledge of that which concerns piety, in hope of eternal life, which ever truthful Yahweh has promised, before the times of the ages, and in the proper time made known his word by proclamation, which I am entrusted according to a commandment of Yahweh our Savior. And Paul is clearly associating Yahshua Christ with Yahweh God, that they are one and the same. The occurrences of the name Yahweh in this epistle are all from the Greek word for God, which is Theos. As Christians, we have no intellectual problem Translating Theos as Yahweh in the Biblical context, because Yahweh is God, or Theos, and there is no other. Doing this, we also make the constant profession and recognition that Yahweh, the God represented by the Tetragrammaton in the inscriptions and manuscripts of the Old Testament, is one and the same God who expressed himself in the form of Yahshua Christ in the New Testament. So to us, this is a direct challenge, not only to the Jews who are his eternal enemies, but also to denominational Christians who must eventually make the same realization. And eventually they will, whether they like it or not. But oddly, the word kurios, which is usually Lord in the King James Version, in reference to both God and Christ, does not at all appear in the epistle to Titus, although it is so frequent in Paul's other letters. Both this circumstance and the absence of some of the flowery particles which the writings in Paul's other epistles often contain, have caused contentions over the authenticity of this epistle. We do not think such contentions have any merit, as we have shown first that this epistle, in both its context and its content, fits rather perfectly into the circumstances of Paul's ministry at the time in which it was written, as we have identified it. And now we shall state that for the purposes for which it was written, the rather concise nature of the text is not extraordinary. Furthermore, Paul had many different men in his company, and most, if not all of his epistles, were written by one of his companions. Luke is not with him at this time, which is apparent in the account at Acts chapter 20. And this may easily explain the differences in the writing style. So Paul's epistles, the authenticity of Paul's epistles, because he used, because his eyesight was failing, and because he used other writers to write them for him and not himself, cannot be judged simply by the style of writing. They can't be. It's not fair to Paul. And Paul explains that other men have written his epistles in various places. The end of Romans, the end of Galatians, and elsewhere. Now to turn to these passages, this passage which we just read, these verses which we just read. Setting aside the artificial division which we see between verses 1 and 2 in our modern translations, it is evident that Paul is informing us through Titus that both the faith of the elect of Yahweh and the true knowledge of that which concerns piety or godliness is the hope of eternal life, which the ever-truthful Yahweh has promised before the world began, as the King James Version reads that last clause of verse 2. If eternal life was promised to Adamic man before the world began, and if Yahweh God is indeed ever truthful, then each and every Adamic man must partake in that eternal life. Or God's a liar. Paul did not say that the hope is that each man has an opportunity for such life. If perhaps he does one thing or another, or does not do one thing or another, Rather, Paul says that each man among the elect of God has that hope even before he was born, without exception and according to God himself who cannot lie. One other place where we see the same concept expressed is in chapter 2 of the Wisdom of Solomon, where we read, For God created man to be immortal and made him to be an image of his own eternity. That's what the image of God is in Genesis chapter 2. Nevertheless, through envy of the devil came death into the world, and they that do hold of his side do find it. We see in the Genesis account that Yahweh God told the man he would die only if he ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So man found death when Eve envied the devil, as it says in Solomon, and Adam joined her in that sin. If it was through envy of the devil that death came into the world, and the original promise to the Adamic race is eternal life, then if for for this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil, as the Apostle John wrote in chapter 3, Of his first epistle. Then the primary focus of the purpose of God and the struggle in this world is the battle between Yahweh God and the devil and his enemies. Whereas the struggle between man and his own sin is secondary to that primary focus. As Paul had said in his epistle to the Galatians that the law which came 420 years after the promise to Abraham, or 430 years, I'm sorry, after the promise to Abraham, cannot disannul the promises to Abraham. We can say that the law, which came over 4,000 years after the sin in the garden, cannot disannul the original purpose of God and the promise of eternal life made to the collective Adamic race before the world began for the greater reason of the eventual triumph the eventual triumph of Yahweh God over the devil Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that as in Adam all die even so in Christ all shall be made alive if all are not made alive then Christ cannot destroy the works of the devil which caused man to sin and to find death in the first place. So Paul further explained in his epistle to the Romans in Romans chapter 5, for this reason, just as by one man sin entered into the society, and by that sin death, and in that manner death is passed to all men, on account that all have sinned, For until the law, Paul goes off on a long parenthetical remark here, for until the law sin was in the society, but sin was not accounted there not being law. But death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not committed a sin resembling the transgression of Adam, who is an image of the future. But should not, as was the transgression, in that manner also be the favor. Indeed, if in the transgression of one many die, meaning all the descendants of Adam, much greater is the favor of Yahweh and the gift in favor, which is of the one man, Yahshua Christ, in which many, which has to mean all the descendants of Adam, have great advantage. And Paul asks a rhetorical question. And not then, by one having committed sin, is the gift. Indeed, the fact is that the judgment of a single one is for condemnation, as Christ was condemned on our behalf. That refers to Christ. But the favor is from many transgressions into a judgment of acquittal. For if in the transgression of one, meaning Adam, death has taken reign through that one, much more is the advantage of the favor and the gift of justice they are receiving. In life they will reign through the one, Yahshua Christ. And that's the end, as I translated the Greek. That's the end of the parenthetical remark. And Paul says, So then, as that one transgression is for all men for a sentence of condemnation, meaning the transgression of Adam, in this manner then, through one decision of judgment for all men, is for a judgment of life meaning the decision by which God chose to die on behalf of men, the Lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. Therefore, even as through the disobedience of one man, the many were set down as wrongdoers, in this manner then through the obedience of one, meaning the obedience of Christ, the many will be established as righteous, the same many. Moreover, law entered in addition that transgression would increase, but where sin increased, favor, mercy, grace, exceeded beyond measure. That just as sin reigned in death, so then shall favor reign through justice for eternal life through Yahshua Christ our Prince. Whether we as individuals like it or not, The purpose of Yahweh God when He created the Adamic man was for that man to have eternal life and God cannot fail. So Yahweh further purposed to demonstrate His will for man through the history of His relationship with the children of Israel. The other branches of our Adamic family are blessed through Yahweh's relationship with Israel and the first promise of restoration through the Tree of Life is found in Genesis chapter 3 verse 22. So Peter portrays Christ, as having preached the gospel, not only to Israel, but to the spirits of those in prison, referring to the dead who perished in the flood of Noah. And they are preeminent among the sinners of ancient history. So if they can hear the gospel and be reconciled to God, we should not exclude that possibility for any of the sons of Adam. As Paul had written in Romans chapter 11 comparing the Israelites of the dispersions with the Israelites in Judea. For as you in times past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief, even so have these also now not believed, that through your mercy they may also obtain mercy. For God has concluded them all in unbelief, that he might have mercy upon all. Those who do not think that salvation is for our entire race deny the purpose of God, deny the sovereignty of God, deny the mercy of God, the forgiveness of God. And they deny the fact that the primary struggle in this world is greater than man because Yahweh God has enemies here on earth and vengeance is his. Paul also said in that chapter of Romans that the gifts and calling of God are without repentance, meaning that when God purposes to do something, he cannot change from his purpose. The Adamic man was made to have eternal life, and God cannot fail in one instance. So as Paul wrote in another place in Romans chapter 14, For it is written, As I live, saith Yahweh, Every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. Eventually, every last Adamic man, and woman of course, is going to do just that. But we must not think, and we have never taught, that sin has no consequences for the sinner. This is a childish charge made against these scriptures by certain Judaized detractors who refuse to acknowledge the transcendental truths of Scripture, which are expressed in the greater purposes of Yahweh our God. Daniel clearly says in chapter 12 of his prophecy, And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament." the expanse of heaven, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars for ever and ever. In this same regard, Paul of Tarsus explained in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. And if And if any man's work abide which he has built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so is by fire. If you have no works in the end, (laughs) you'll suffer loss, everlasting contempt perhaps, but you yourself shall be saved, yet so is by fire of trials of this life in that respect even the fornicator of 1 Corinthians chapter 5 would suffer in the flesh and live in the spirit as Paul commanded that assembly to deliver such a one unto Satan or the adversary the Jews the pagans deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus even a fornicator will be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus as Yahweh promised eternal life to the Adamic race all of Israel shall be saved as Paul stated elsewhere in Romans and as it is stated in Isaiah chapter 45 in Yahweh shall all the seed of Israel be saved and shall glory but evidently at least some of the children of Adam shall be resurrected to everlasting content a state which nonetheless infers a continued and permanent existence think about it we believe even though a lot of turkeys and clowns just Hate us for teaching this. They just hate this more than anything. They love to take one of their Israelite brethren and hurl them down a cliff into the lake of fire because they don't like them for some reason. That boils down to the parable of the, the the wicked servant, and how we must judge our brethren the way we hope to be judged, because if we don't have mercy of, for our brethren we're going to be screwed. You're going to wake up to eternal contempt. There's no doubt. We believe that it is important to properly understand these fundamental scriptural concepts because it is in this that we realize the basis for true Christian communion. We attempted to explain this at length in a presentation we did a few years ago entitled Unity and Divisions. Christians should not care for one another so that they can somehow attain eternal life, as if they earn it by their own works. Man cannot earn eternal life. It is a gift from God, and it is given freely when it's given at all. Rather, Christians should care for one another because they have eternal life and because they are destined to spend an eternity together. So as Paul describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, having no good works in the end, one may indeed expect an eternity spent in the misery of everlasting contempt. We're not good to each other. We don't do the will of God to earn our way to heaven. We do the will of God because we've been promised eternal life. And that means that we have to live with each other forever. So we don't want to do each other wrong now. We want to do what's right for one another now. That's the difference in thinking. We don't earn our way into eternal life. To commence with the address of Paul's epistle, to Titus after expressing the hope of Christ in eternal life. To Titus, a purely bred child, according to common belief, favor and peace from Father Yahweh, even Yahshua Christ our Savior. The King James Version reads this verse to read in part. To Titus, mine own son, after the common faith. But there is no pronoun for my or mine, and the Greek word which they render merely as own has a much greater meaning that this translation does not reveal. The translators presumed that Paul was speaking of his own relationship with Titus. And they wrote that presumption into their translation, typically having to add one or more words of their own, so it, so it makes sense. However, the presumption is certainly not correct. There is no pronoun for my or mine in this Greek text, in any manuscript. But first we will briefly discuss the phrase, common faith, or as we have it in the Christian New Testament, common belief. The word koinus is common. It is also the root of the Greek word which is typically translated as communion which is pro- which properly describes something which is shared in common The original gospels and letters of the New Testament are said to have been written in Koine Greek the word Koine being akin to this word koinos So the phrase designates a form of the Greek language which was common to the wider Greco-Roman world, rather than a peculiar dialect, such as Attic Greek, or Aeolic or Doric Greek. The word pistis is primarily belief, and it is often translated faith, but it is not always used to refer to a particular faith. The word is merely trust, faith, or belief, persuasion of the thing, confidence, or assurance, according to Liddell and Scott. And by no means may its meaning be restricted to the faith, referring to the faith of Abraham, or a faith in God and Christ. Sometimes when it appears in the Bible, it refers to a belief in other things now to address the phrase purely bred child as we have it for which the king james version has mine own son the word which we express as purely bred is ganesios strong's number 1103 which is defined by liddell and scott to mean of or belonging to the race for example, lawfully begotten, legitimate, opposed to nathus. In other words, the antonym of genetios is nathus. The word genetios is a derivative from the word genos. And genos is primarily race, stock, or family. So we see how genetios is related to the word genos or race. We may imagine a context whereby ganesios may mean own in relation to a particular race, or of children descending from a common parentage, such as my saying one of my own children to mean one of my actual descendants, right? But this is not the case here, since there is no pronoun which would be necessary to set such a context. In ancient times, especially amongst the Israelites, but later even among the Greeks and Romans, there were strict laws governing marriage between people of different nations. And the Romans imposed such laws on the people of the provinces over which they ruled. You couldn't just marry anybody you want. The ancients were opposed to race-mixing and their concepts of racial preservation may not have always been perfect according to our own standards or to the standards of even older societies, but they were indeed established in the meanings of the words in their own languages. Elsewhere in the writings of Paul, the word "nathus" appears in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 8, opposed to the word huios which is the common word for son. In that passage, Paul wrote that one is either a bastard, nathus, or a son, quios. And a proper translation of both words is found even in the King James Version of that passage. Therefore, because the word genetius means belonging to the race, what race, depending upon the context in which the word is used, and because it is the antonym of Nothis, and furthermore, because it is an adjective which modifies the word for child, in order to convey the full meaning of the term, it is translated as purely bread, here at Titus chapter 1 verse 4. And also in this same context, in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 2 since only by using such a phrase as purely bread can the full meaning of the word be transmitted that genetios is an adjective modifying the noun technon which is child here is clear in the grammar of the passage as it immediately precedes technon and both words appear in the dative of case in all manuscripts so genetios is an adjective meaning belonging to the race, which modifies the word child. So Paul is calling Titus a child belonging to the race, a purely bred child, as opposed to a child of mixed race, or a bastard, a nafice. In other contexts, when a word is not used to describe people, it may be rendered simply as legitimate or genuine, and Paul does that, but it's not being used to describe people in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8, or Philippians chapter 4, verse 3, or the equivalent adverb at Philippians chapter 2, verse 20. But to be a genuine or legitimate child of the faith in Christ, one must be a genuine seed from the loins of Abraham as Paul also explained in Romans chapter 4, in Galatians chapter 3, and elsewhere. So now we must reflect on the obvious question, which is why Paul would address both Titus and Timothy as purely bred children, where he used the same exact phrase for each of them in the epistles which were written at roughly the same time in his ministry. If they were not written at the same time, they were written very closely together. As we've also seen as possible, as we have described the writing of these epistles here. In Acts chapter 16, where Timothy is first mentioned, we read that he was a son of a faithful Judean woman, but of a Greek father for that reason alone many of the ancients and especially the judeans may have considered timothy to be a bastard likewise titus seems to have been a greek as well if as we assert he is the titus justice of acts chapter eighteen verse eight we read this account and he meaning paul argued in the assembly hall during each sabbath and he persuaded judeans and greeks And as both Silas and Timotheus or Timothy came down from Macedonia, this is in about 50 or 51 AD, Paul was impelled by the word, affirming to the Judeans Yahshua to be the Christ. But upon their opposition and blaspheming, shaking off the garments he said to them your blood is upon your heads I now clean of this shall go to the people and removing from there he went into a house of someone named Titius Justice or Titus Justice a worshipper of Yahweh whose house was abutting the assembly hall now while later in the chapter it is described that at least some of the Judeans had turned to Christ It is evident that if the Judean leaders whom Paul addressed had rejected Paul and his message, and he turned to the people, then Titus' Justus, whom we believe is the Titus of Paul's epistles, may indeed have been a Greek. Paul's use of the phrase, genetios technon, purely bred child, in reference to both Timothy and to Titus, certainly indicates that he was a Greek and that's why Paul used the phrase throughout his ministry Paul had correctly taught that many of the Greeks actually descended from the ancient Israelites of scripture we have historical data to support that belief of course it's not really a belief, it's an understanding of history In all of his epistles, Paul's express purpose was to reconcile the scattered people of ancient Israel to Yahweh their God in Christ, which accords with both the Old Testament prophets and the Gospel of Christ. So Paul, confident in that understanding, was giving both Titus and Timothy assurances of their own legitimacy, and therefore, ...of their respective shares in the covenants which Yahweh had made exclusively with the children of Israel. The long dispersed Israelites, which included the tribes of the Romans, the Greek tribes of the Dorians and Danans, the Saxons, the Celts, or the Galatahi, the Parthians, and others, had no longer kept the genealogical records which were so important to their Hebrew forefathers... Nevertheless, here we are informed, that Titus was a pure Adamic child, according to common belief, or in other words, that he should be considered one of the seed of Abraham according to his nation of origin, the ancient history of that nation is being of the seed of Abraham, as well as by his character and his appearance, all of which things are expressed in one or more places throughout the book of Acts and in Paul's epistles." Esteeming that Titus was of one of the nations descended from Abraham, he could be considered a purely bred child according to common belief, referring to the fact that apparently Titus was descended from the seed of Abraham. The authority by which that is apparent is found in the history and in the words of the prophets. The word nathos, or derivatives of it, also appears several times in the Septuagint, in the same context as Paul had used it in Hebrews, describing someone who is not of the pure race. For instance, in chapter 14 of the Wisdom of Solomon, we read the following from the King James Apocrypha, where it speaks of the sins of the children of Israel, and it says, "...they kept neither lives nor marriages any longer undefiled." but either one slew another traitorously or grieved him by adultery and there in that passage the word translated adultery is a participle form of the related verb nathuo which means to corrupt or adulterate so it is evident that the source of the nathos or bastard is found when one corrupts one's race in the marriage bed. Likewise, in chapter 4 of the Wisdom of Solomon, we read, But the multiplying brood of the ungodly shall not thrive, nor take deep rooting from bastard slips, nor lay any fast foundation." These ungodly are compared to the virtuous, who, it says in the preceding verse, are better off having no children, striving for undefiled rewards. So in a wicked world, when you can't find an appropriate wife, you just simply don't have one. You don't marry a bastard and create more bastards. But the common term for adultery used in the New Testament is moikaia, or, yes, moikaia is how I would pronounce that. And moikaia may refer to a sexual relationship with the wife or husband of another, as well as to race mixing. It is our opinion that the Greeks use this word in either case, because either case mixed or confused the Substance, the genealogical line of a race or family, of a man's progeny with that of another. Here we will establish that idea further. In a paper, in a paper which we wrote in July 2010, titled Adultery and Fornication, which was presented in a podcast that same month, and which badly needs to be updated, we said the following. Strabo clearly uses Moicus, the word commonly translated adulterer in the New Testament. A moicus is a male adulterer, a moicalis is a or Moikalis is a female adulterer. Strabo clearly uses Moicus twice of race mixers in his geography in Book sixteen chapter four where he states of certain tribes that the penalty for an adulterer is death but among them only the person of the other race is considered the adulterer so they had mercy on the people of their same race from that passage in Strabo and not much more I have long asserted that the noun Moikaia which is adultery The noun moicus, which is an adulterer, and the related verb moikio, which means to commit adultery, were all related to the Greek word mignumi, a verb which means to mix. But now we have further evidence to substantiate our assertion. For this we are indebted to a friend and correspondent in Greece who follows our work Finding it first from our historical essays on the ancient Greeks, and who writes from time to time lending items of interest or valued assistance to our understanding of Greece and ancient, of Greek and ancient Greece. There is at least one letter from him in the letters section of Christogenia, and one day we hope to find the time to publish the others, or at least some of the others. Publishing some of the worthy letters we receive is one task in which we are probably the farthest behind. I apologize for that. Anyway, our friend recently brought to our attention a passage in Aristotle's Animalia, or the History of Animals. And the passage reads, and I'm going to read the Greek and the English, read the Greek and translate it into English. The passage reads... Tāgar alagene which means sense the other races or other species, if you will, either way, mēmek tahi are mixed. Kahi, mēmoikutahi, which means and diluted, are mixed and diluted. Hoop alelon which means by one another or by each other since the other races, or species, are mixed and diluted by one another. This passage is found five lines from the bottom of page 442 of book 10 of Aristotle's History of Animals in Greek and Latin, evidently compiled by French naturalist Georges Cuvier and edited by Johann Schneider, published in 1811 in Lyon in France. An 1878 translation of this book of Aristotle, and I will have all the appropriate links and material here, by Richard Creswell at St. John's College at Oxford, has this same passage to read, For the other kinds are mixed and crossed with each other. And even there we see that the verb Moikuo, which is to commit adultery throughout the New Testament, refers to the crossbreeding of species. So that we could show the context, we will read the entire paragraph from Cresswell's translation. There is another kind of eagle called sea eagle, which has a long and thick neck, curved wings, and a wide rump. It inhabits the sea and the coast. When they have seized their prey and cannot carry it away, they are borne down into the sea. There is again another kind of eagle called true eagle. They say that these alone of all other birds are true, for the other kinds are mixed and crossed with each other, both eagles, hawks, and other smaller kinds. This is the largest of all the eagles, greater than the fene, One and a half times as large as other eagles, and of a red color, it is seldom seen, like that called Scenindus. Now, not to argue with Aristotle over his view of birds, and, and which species are mixed in which species aren't, or whether birds really interbreed with other species. That's not the point here. The point here is his use of that word, moikuo. And it definitely means diluted, adulterated, or, as Cresswell has it, crossbred, crossed. This passage contains a perfect form of the verbs *magnumi*, which is the word memektahi, And moikuo, which is moikutahi, which we must translate as since the other species are mixed and diluted by one another. And Cresswell comes very close to that where he has for the other species are mixed and crossed with each other. And our Greek friend agreed that in this instance, moikuo in the passive tense here in this context, would have to mean to be adulterated because of the mixing. So if moikuo in the passive tense can mean to be adulterated because of the mixing, then in the active tense, it must mean to commit adultery by race mixing. So we see from Aristotle that the Greek word moikaia can indeed refer to adultery as in having sexual relations with the spouse of another, but it can also refer to the sort of adultery which results from race mixing. But neither Titus nor Timothy were race mixed, as they were descended from Greeks and Israelites, and therefore they were of the race of the seed of Abraham, and purely bred children according. To the common belief, the belief which Paul had transmitted through both ancient history and the words of the Old Testament prophets, which is found throughout all of his epistles. Paul only made this assurance to them for one reason, because Christ came but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel because the promise of the new covenant is exclusive to the house of Israel and the house of Judah, and because a bastard shall not enter the congregation of Yahweh. Therefore, purity spiraling is a necessary practice amongst the true disciples of Christ. With this we shall proceed to verse 5 of the first chapter of this epistle to Titus. And he says, for this cause, Paul writes, I should say, for this cause, I have left you in Crete, that you would set in order the things which are wanting, and establish elders by city, as I have instructed you. It is commonly written by denominational commentators, that Titus was ordained by Paul to be be the bishop of Crete, I'm sorry, I'm tripping over myself, because this, that this superficial understanding of scripture, which is found in so many denominational commentaries, and I poked around for this, just for the hell of it this afternoon. The superficial understanding of scripture just permeates all of denominational Christianity. Titus was not ordained by Paul to be the Bishop of Crete. That's a fable. It's not true at all. Titus did not even remain in Crete as he was later expected by Paul to be in a Troad. And he was found in Nicopolis and in Rome and then he went off to Dalmatia. So Titus was not committed to remain in any particular place. Rather, Paul is saying that he left him in Crete so that the Christian assemblies there could be organized and, as we will see in further detail throughout the balance of this chapter, so that elders or bishops could be appointed by Titus or under his supervision. Ostensibly, at some point between their departure together from Corinth in late 51 or early 52 B.C., their voyage to Antioch, as Paul wrote in Galatians that Titus was with him in Antioch, and the end of Paul's long stay at Ephesus from late 53 or 50 or early 54 to early 56 AD, Paul had left Titus and Crete in order to organize the Christians there. Since there is no record of any ministry in Crete on the part of Paul, we do not really know exactly when this may have been, or even who it was that evangelized the first Christians in Crete. But it was most likely during the years from 52 to 55 AD that Titus had done these things. One thing which we did not mention in our introduction is that because Paul had expected to see Titus in the Troad when he departed from Ephesus, it is evident that the two must have been in contact through letters during this period, or Paul could not have had such an expectation. With this, it is also evident that Titus' ministry in Crete was expected to be temporary, as Paul expected Titus to be in the Troad in 56 AD and later sometime during Paul's house arrest in Rome we see Titus visited Paul in Rome and had gone off to Dalmatia but something further becomes apparent as we read this epistle and not only do we learn that Paul had left Titus in Crete to organize the assembly there at some point in the past but now Paul begins advising Titus on how to deal with the Cretans for the present, which is as he writes this epistle. So ostensibly, Titus is not in the Troad where Paul expected him to be because he had an urgent reason to go to Crete once again. And Paul is reminding him of the things necessary for the proper organization of that assembly. Perhaps there were problems among the Christians of Crete, for which reason Titus was compelled to depart from the Troad and return there, before Paul had arrived in the Troad. So Paul is writing, not only to summon Titus to meet him in the Nicopolis, but also to remind Titus and encourage him to bring the assembly at Crete to a proper order there must have been problems in Crete which merited the unplanned return of Titus to the island as Paul's words here are quite harsh in regard to the Cretans where he even cites the famous paradox of Epimenides that the Cretans the Cretans are always liars and Paul cites it for his own purposes But the truth is that Epimenides was a Cretan, and if the Cretans are always liars, then Epimenides is lying, saying that the Cretans are always liars. So we will also discuss that farther when we get to the appropriate place in our commentary. We have written about Crete often in our essays and other articles at Christagenia. For instance, there are connections from Crete to the Trojans and the Dorian Greeks in the earliest times. We are persuaded that Crete was a staging area for the migrations of the people from the Levant to Greece and other points in the Aegean Sea. Early Greek historians also inform us that colonies in Italy and beyond were founded from Crete. After our program last week, where we defended our cause against many of our critics, in particular Daisy Duke, The same friend who informed us of the use of the word for adultery in the text of Aristotle also sent us a link to an article on Crete found at the website for the British Broadcasting Corporation. The article is titled, DNA Reveals Origin of Greeks' Ancient Minoan Culture, the culture which was centered at Crete. And while the conclusions it makes are in line with our own expectations it is of good use to further rebuke the claims of our critics. We do not care for DNA science and many of the conclusions of the scientists, as they are generally ignorant of history and produce many many errors for that reason and others. But we will nevertheless cite the article here. And it says that Europe's first advanced civilization was local in origin, and not imported from elsewhere. Analysis, and we definitely don't agree with that, right? But we'll roll with the article and explain that later. Analysis of DNA from ancient remains on the Greek island of Crete suggests the Minoans were indigenous Europeans, shedding new light on a debate over the provenance of this ancient culture. This is the mistake of letting genetic scientists write history, right? Scholars have variously argued the Bronze Age civilization arrived from Africa, Anatolia, or the Middle East. The concept of the Minoan civilization was first developed by Sir Arthur Evans, the British archaeologist who unearthed the Bronze Age Palace of Nassos on Crete. Evans named the people who built these cities after the legendary king Minos who, according to tradition, ordered the construction of a labyrinth on Crete to hold the mythical half-man, half-bull creature known as the Minotaur. Evans was of the opinion that the real-life Bronze Age culture on Crete must have its origins elsewhere, and so he suggested that the Minoans were refugees from Egypt's Nile Delta, fleeing the region's conquest by a southern king some 5,000 years ago. Now, of course, Evans's story is conjecture, but the only people recorded to have fled the Nile Delta region in that manner were the Israelites of the Old Testament, whom the Greeks had said not only went with Moses to Judea, but also settled places in Greece and certain other regions. Strangely, Evans could not have imagined that the Cretans came from the Levant, but all of the evidence of the ancient histories attests that the original Cretans were Phoenicians, and by them the mainland of Europe was settled. Strabo and Diodorus Siculus both state such things rather explicitly. Our article continues, and under the heading, Surprisingly Advanced, we read of author Evans that he was surprised to find this advanced civilization on Crete, says co author George Stamatoyanopolis. Stamatoianopolis, that's it. George Stamatoyanopoulos from the University of Washington in Seattle. The evidence for this idea included apparent similarities between Egyptian and Minoan art and resemblances between circular tombs built by the early inhabitants of southern Crete and those built by ancient Libyans. But other archaeologists have argued for origins in Palestine, Syria, or Anatolia. And we must say that the ancient historians attest that the Cretans were Phoenicians who founded Miletus and assisted in the settling in Anatolia of the Carians, the Lalegas, and other tribes from the islands of the sea. Again, our article says, in this study, Professor Stamatoyanopoulos and colleagues analyzed the DNA of 37 individuals buried in a cave on the Lassithi Plateau in the island's east. The majority of the burials are thought to date to the middle of the Minoan period around 3,700 years ago. Now, this would be the earliest part of what we would consider the first migrations to Europe of the Children of Israel, which probably began around 1550 to 1500 BC. Others may have crossed the Mediterranean sooner in service to the Egyptians. And no doubt, Syrians and others from the Levant were also moving among the islands of the Mediterranean. To continue with our article, it says, the analysis focused on mitochondrial DNA extracted from the teeth of the skeletons. This type of DNA is stored in the cell's quote-unquote batteries, and is passed down more or less unchanged from mother to child. And mitochondrial DNA exists near the wall of the cell, not in the nucleus, and contains the data necessary for the cell to process food, which is why it's called batteries, right? The nucleus, the nuclear DNA comes from both parents and actually makes us what we are or what we're not. They then compared the frequencies of distinct mitochondrial DNA lineages known as haplogroups and this ancient Minoan set with similar data for 135 other populations including ancient samples from Europe and Anatolia as well as modern peoples. The comparison seemed to rule out an origin for the Minoans in North Africa. The ancient Cretans showed little genetic similarity to Libyans, Egyptians or the Sudanese. There were also genetically distant they were also genetically distant from populations in the Arabian Peninsula, including Saudis and Yemenis. And we must say that all of these areas mentioned were at one time predominantly white, except perhaps Sudan. But the original populations have been replaced with bastards. A process that has been ongoing for at least 3,000 years but which accelerated greatly under the Islamic conquests of the Middle Ages. Continuing with our article, it says under the heading Locally Sourced, the ancient Midwin DNA was most similar to populations from Western and Northern Europe. The population showed particular genetic affinities with Bronze Age populations from Sardinia and Iberia and Neolithic samples from Scandinavia and France. And we must say that it can be proven etymologically that Sardinia received its name from the Hebrew words Shardani, which means remnant of Dan there is inscriptional evidence which supports that assertion. Likewise, Iberia, the name Iberia, comes from the Hebrew word Eber, or perhaps Iber, which can mean to cross over, and is the word from which the very term Hebrew is derived, after Eber, the first Hebrew. The word Neolithic does not bother us here, since it extends to as late as 2000 B.C. in Northern Europe. And peoples related to the Hebrews had certainly begun exploring Europe by that time, wherever they could stand the cold. That does not mean that those early explorers are the founders of European civilization, but the Bible itself puts people related to the Hebrews, puts Adamic people in Europe, as early as 3200 BC, and leaves open the possibility of much earlier exploration. We cannot rule it out. Continuing with our article, they say that they also resemble people who live on the La Plateau today. A population that was previous, that has previously attracted attention from geneticists, probably because of its relative isolation. The authors therefore conclude that the Minoan civilization was a local development, it just popped out of the ground I guess, originated by inhabitants who probably reached the island around 9,000 years ago in Neolithic times. Now the Neolithic period ends in the Levant and the Mediterranean Basin earlier than it does in Northern Europe. As the dates are subjective to presumed signs of development in any given re- in any given region. But it is conjecture for these writers to imagine when people first appeared on Crete or how they got there. They're only guessing That these people must have came from Europe because they resemble modern Europeans. Which isn't true at all. Because modern Europeans did not originate in Europe. It's that simple. Continuing with our article. There has been all this controversy over the years. We have shown how the analysis of DNA can help archaeologists and historians put things straight, Professor Stamatoinopoulos told BBC News. Wow, that name has about 20 letters. I'm sorry. (laughs) The Minoans are Europeans and are also related to present-day Cretans on the maternal side. He added, it's obvious that it was very important local development, but it is clear that, for example, in the art, there were influences from other peoples. So we need to see the Mediterranean as a pool, not as a group of isolated nations. And the final line, there is evidence from cultural influence, of cultural influence from Egypt to the Minoans and going the other way. Now, even though we presented a separate scientific genetic study here last week, which shows that the Levant was at one time populated by people very much similar to modern Europeans, This study is evidently ignorant of that study. Professor Stamatoinopoulos evidently hasn't read that study. But that's always a problem among academics who have not read one another's work, or or sometimes it takes years, right, for, for that to happen, for it to come out in journals and actually catch the attention of at least most of the people in that field that it might be important to. That's normal. We ourselves are not surprised that Crete was populated by Europeans because the Israelite Phoenicians who settled there were among the first Europeans. As we have said before, the truth is summarized in the Greek myth that Phoenix was the father of Europa. Genetic science cannot correct history history must be used to understand genetic science. It's ridiculous to think that genetic science is going to correct the historical record. The Mediterranean was a pool, and through the classical histories as well as our Christian Bibles, we can trace all of its inhabitants back 5,000 years in a clear historical line. However, large parts of the Mediterranean basin the Levant and Italia, North Africa and Mesopotamia, the first homes of our white race, having been overrun by Jews and Arabs and Negroes for so long, we must be careful to recognize all those who are purely bred children of God according to the common belief. And we see that purity spiraling is recommended for Christians by the Apostle Paul himself. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. And good night. Tomorrow we will be here with. Pastor Mark Downey.